Well, welcome back, everyone, to another exciting episode of Right Down the Street. My name is Brian Barnett. I'm the mayor of the amazing city of Rochester Hills, Michigan, and your host. Now, this podcast, uh, Right Down the Street, uh, is something we've been doing for a little while, maybe a year or so, and I'm excited about it. I love every episode has been unique, and it's really designed to celebrate the ideas, the perspectives, and the passions of the people that live and work, as you might guess, right down the street. And today, I'm honored to have two really important and timely guests joining me today uh, to talk about something that um, boy, is, is, really, um, uh, is really growing in its discussion and, and, and really a, a large part of, of every part of American life. Uh, let me introduce to you first Ron Sanderson. Ron was born and raised in Rochester Hills, currently lives here with his wife and his daughter. He's an author, speaker. I'm sure we'll talk about uh, some of your upcoming speaking engagements and a powerful advocate for autism acceptance. He is an advisory board member of the Art of Autism and the ELS Center of Excellence. He himself is on the autism spectrum. He is a treasure trove of firsthand knowledge and experience on the topic. Ron, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for having me on your show today. Well, thank you. And, and we're joined also, very grateful to have Kristen Rohrbach here. Uh, Kristen is the director of the Joanne and Ted Lindsay Foundation for Autism Outreach Services at Oakland University here in Rochester Hills. Uh, she's worked with individuals with autism and other special needs for over 15 years. As the director of OU Cares, uh, she has seen that growth now serving over 2,200 people impacted by autism in Southeast Michigan with over 100 annual programs. One of the best and most well-known advocate and leader in the autism community in uh, Southeast Michigan, Kristen, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Well, this is a really um, interesting topic, uh, oftentimes a tough topic uh, to talk about. There's a a lot of mystique and, 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 and challenge and concern that you want to address it in an appropriate way. And so having two folks as experts, I hope we really get a chance to get into it. Uh, autism um, is, by definition, a complex, lifelong developmental condition that typically appears during early childhood and can impact a person's social skills, communication, relationship, and self-regulation. And it's different for everyone. Uh, in 2001, and 150 children were diagnosed with autism. But that number has been rising by about 10 to 17% each year. In fact, this year, nearly one in f out of every 44 children are diagnosed with autism, meaning over 7 million people in the United States are on the autism spectrum. Ron, you are, uh, like I said, one of the foremost experts in this, at least locally. Tell us a little bit about your experience um, being on the autism spectrum and what indications did your parents have that led to your diagnosis? So I was diagnosed with autism in 1982 at Henry Ford Hospital. Then it was only one in every 10,000 children. Now, as you mentioned, it's one in every 44 children. And some of the signs were um, my development began normal. I said my first word, mommy, at nine months. Then when I got to 18 months, I went from being able to say mommy to only mom, mom. And I went from able to having perfect eye contact to no eye contact. And my mom having two um, typical children knew there was something drastically different between me and my older brother, Steve and Chucky. Hmm. And, and, uh, and, and obviously, as I said earlier, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but the autism experience can be different for everyone. But there are some signs that parents and doctors may notice that you said you, you know, your, your parents noticed in you. Kristen, can you tell us from your perspective some of the indicators, uh, what, what they might be and why an early diagnosis and intervention is important when it comes to autism? Definitely. Many families get um, 
some early indicators when you see that your child might not be, like Ron said, maybe looking you in the eye, but it's much, much more than that as well. It could be um, some challenges with communication in a lot of different ways. It could be just some differences in the way that individuals start to socialize or even pull away from socializing at early ages and not wanting to interact with um, peers or other children or adults even, the way that other children seem to be doing more normally and readily, as well as a lot of times you look for repetitive behaviors. And that could be actual physical movements and behaviors, but it could also be really repetitive cognitive behavior, so to speak. So things like um, extreme interest in specific things or lining up toys in certain ways. Those are just a few of the indicators that might um, uh, indicate that you should talk to maybe a pediatrician about a potential mm -hmm. autism um, intervention. Sure. And, and Ron, you mentioned in, in, I think, one of your books that your mom was really the, the key person early on that, that, uh, that helped you uh, recognize the diagnosis. And as you said, Kristen uh, talked about an intervention. What are some of the things that she did that helped you with sort of your social skills in, 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 in sort of the early stages? Yeah, so she quit her job as a full-time art teacher and became a full-time Ron teacher. She took my special interest in prairie dogs and develop my skills by having me use art. 80% of people with autism are visual learners rather than audio. To me, the biggest scam in US history, it's not Enron, it's hooked on phonics because I can't learn anything phonetically, but only visually. And I have a great visual ability to be able to memorize. I have 15,000 Bible verses memorized word perfect and over 5,000 quotes. And what she did is she would have me draw pictures She'd have me tell her stories. She'd write down those stories, and then I'd rewrite the stories. And I went from having dyslexia at age five to no dyslexia at age seven because she taught the way I learned. Hmm. That's interesting. That is incredible. Uh, you know, uh, thankfully you had a, a, a an active parent uh, that really recognized, and I'm sure her her background as a teacher probably uh, uh, gave her a little bit of a, a leg up in understanding that. That's a, a, a really interesting story. Um, Kristen, you are a tremendous force for advocacy in autism outreach services in Southeast Michigan. And, and uh, the OU Cares um, organization is now the Joanne and Ted Lindsay Foundation. Uh, I had the great privilege of knowing Joanne and Ted Lindsay. Um, of course, if you, you recognize the name, Ted Lindsay is a, uh, a Hall of Fame uh, hockey player uh, for the Detroit Red Wings, one of the probably 10 greatest players of all time. Uh, in the NHL, um, and you know his career after hockey, which spanned I think like six decades. I mean, he played forever. Uh, he and Joanne became incredibly generous people in the greater Rochester community. Uh, considered him a tremendous friend. We talked politics, but I know he had a passion uh, for this and, and left a tremendous legacy and, and a seven-figure gift to to launch it. Tell me a little bit about your work with OU Cares. Definitely. So OU Cares, as you mentioned, is the Joanne and Ted Lindsay Foundation Autism Outreach Services at Oakland University and our Center for Autism. And we offer a number of different kinds of supports in our region. So things like recreational sports, social skills programs, employment readiness training, summer camps, a number of different parents and caregiver supports and trainings, and um, more broadly, special events and training also for the for the 
bigger community. We were very, very lucky from the Ted Lindsay Foundation to have an endowment given to us for a million dollars back in 2018 to specifically grow and develop our supports for adults with autism and their families. So we've been really lucky to grow, especially social programs and social readiness programs, employment training programs for those older teens and adults because of their wonderful gift. Yeah, they, they um, truly are, are folks that uh, uh, walk the walk. And Definitely. Uh, we miss both of them now uh, since past, but really what, what an amazing legacy. And thank you for your, your leadership there. Um, Ron, going back to, to your life, we, we kind of started with uh, the early stages and, 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 and a diagnosis and an active parent and, and how you overcame some of those initial challenges. Then, then fast forward to 1995, um, I think you're in high school, right? yeah. and uh, you have a pretty significant event, the Americans Disability Case Sanderson versus MHSAA. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what impact it had on your life? Yeah, so my junior year, my wife was on the right track. I was one of the fastest runners in the state of Michigan, and uh, my relay team finished 12th in the state of Michigan. And on the way back, Nate Clay said next year we'd be the fastest relay team in the state of Michigan for a 3,200, but we won't have Ron on our relay team. And right then I heard God speak to me and say, I'll provide a way for you to run on the track team. I said, I'm going to run on the track team. And Coach Bud said in the last 20 years, no one has run past the, the age limit. And things seemed impossible. My mom called every lawyer, and they said it would be over $45,000. And I came back from a five-mile run, and there on the front page of Detroit Free Press was a man named Craig Stanner. He was born May 1975, same year as me same um, month. And he was a track and cross country runner and had a disability. And the MHSA said they wouldn't let him compete either. So my mom got with his family. We um, had Detroit News put out a second article. And then the week that they put out the article, I got water baptized. And when I came out of the water, the pastor said, I saw Joel 223, or Joel 225. I repay the ears of the locusts, the great locusts, the young locust, the other locust. And he said, God has a blessing for you. And it's beginning this moment when you came out of the water. And when I got home, the answering machine was blinking red. And when I pressed the button, 9 a.m. came up, the exact time I came out of the water. And it began this way. Hi, my name's Rick Landel. I'm a lawyer. And I just got my Ph.D. from Boston College. And I want to take your case pro bono. So when God has an assignment, he's heavily armed. <laughs> so, so just so you understand... So you had aged out. You were too old to yeah. run, according to the MHSAA? By three months. By three months. And then, uh, for those that don't know, how did that case end? So it a ended with me going all the way to Cincinnati courts, them um, giving me the right to run. And then later on, Anthony Sturgo, who was on ESPN, Kick of Hope, um, Gary Marison, who made ABA therapy a household name with all his Supreme Court cases, used my case for his. Anthony, so he could be able to compete. It was president setting case. Yeah, yeah, so interesting. You know, Kristen, in your your work, you've you've kind of, you know, going back and forth here from a, a real life story and examples from Ron to, to your expertise. You've written and been published in all sorts of journals and and and, and writings. Tell our listeners something that might be a little unexpected um, that you've discovered about about autism uh, in your work. Sure. So. I, I'm involved in a few different projects at Oakland University with a number of different researchers. And I think it's really important to obviously 
look at and investigate the challenges that people with autism face across a lifespan. But more than that, I think some of the most important things to remember are that autism, or people with autism, I should say, have amazing gifts and talents. And so even when there are challenges there, to reframe and rethink about ways that people with autism um, can be seen as, as amazing people that can really give back to society, enhance our workplaces, enhance our community, and do amazing things. And uh, obviously, you know, we don't want to flex at the table here because we're all friends. You've been published in some journals, <laughs> but Ron, you've been published as an author. You have uh, at least three books because I'm looking at one of them in front of me mm -hmm. with some recent news that uh, another one is coming, right? Yeah, so my fourth book was picked up by Craig L. They're giving an offer to my literary agent, Bob, and it's on autism growth and transitioning into adulthood. Everything a young adult on the spectrum needs to know to succeed. I interviewed 50 of the most successful people in the world on the spectrum, people like Tay Anderson from season three of Atypical, and I've interviewed pro athletes and got all their insight and put it together and made a whole program actually in helping people with autism to be able to succeed. Right now, only 3% of people with autism are gainfully employed. And with my book, they'll learn those skills, they'll be able to be gainfully employed and also learn relationships. And it has um, fun activities um, that teach those skills, questions. So in a group setting, can help them become autism refined. Yeah, that's incredible. I I think I mentioned to you before, you've written four books. I'm only four books behind you. Yeah. I'm uh, going to write one eventually someday. That's that's awesome. Incredible, incredible uh, uh, inspiration to take your life story and uh, be vulnerable and allow people to uh, to learn from that. That's a, that's quite a um, quite an interesting legacy you're you're leaving as well. Again, my name is Brian Barnett. I'm mayor of the city of Rochester Hills. We're talking with uh, Ron Sanderson and uh, Kristen Rohrbach on the topic of autism. Um, I, I started off the show by mentioning, and I don't know if either of you know this um, or, or why, but the, the fact that, as you mentioned, when you were first diagnosed, Ron, it was one in 10,000. And I think the number now is one out of 44. What is the common uh, thought as to why these numbers are increasing so much? Is it better diagnosis or are there, um, are there climate in the, you know, small C definition, um, that are, you know, impacts that are changing, um, this recognition. Why is this so prevalent now? So some of the, the reasons that you also see in literature are looking at environmental impacts. There are more and more um, studies out that are looking at the impacts of environmental pollutants, for exam example, when uh, mothers are are still having their, their children in their womb um, and the way that those, those environmental impacts play out over time. And then we are also obviously training many, many more people in ways to diagnose and what to look for early on and even through adolescence and into adulthood. So there are many more people who know what to look for and who are able to diagnose as well. And I think too, um, there's a three main reasons I think. Environmental, we are what we eat, all the toxins we're putting in our body. Number two is better diagnosis tools to be able to recognize it. And I think another one that a lot of people don't think of and, um, is the age of the parents. So a lot of parents are having kids later in life. My dad was 41 when he had me. My mom was 24. It was a perfect storm. And I think there's also, um, with the increase in knowledge, there's also in technology, there's an increase in actually autism. And it was actually predicted by Daniel, the prophet in Daniel 12, 4. He said, you, Daniel, go your way. 
there'll be an increase in knowledge. And the interesting thing is the Greek word for knowledge isn't gnosis, a hugging, loving knowledge, such as um, Joseph knew Mary in Matthew 125, but a knowledge, it's odio, which is a uh, head knowledge that leads to technology. And I think that that's exactly what we're seeing, increase in technology and increase in autism. And I think it's um, put in the genetic pool because Temple Grandin said if we didn't have autism, we'd all be sitting around a campfire, clapping our hands, saying kumbaya, but we wouldn't have light, we wouldn't have electricity, we wouldn't have all these inventions, which comes from a uh, planning mind and logical mind. Yeah. So, so obviously the, the learning on this is changing. Um, the research is changing, and even the language around it is changing. Uh, we are here at the doorstep of Autism Awareness Month in April. Autism Awareness Day is uh, April 2nd, and uh, I think April 2nd is World Autism Acceptance Day. And up until very recently, the term was autism awareness, but now the word awareness has been changed to acceptance. So, um, Tristan, why? What, what's so important about the word change? Obviously, awareness is really important. People have to understand and know what autism is in order to take another step. We've been talking about autism for years now. Um, not that that needs to stop by any means. We need to continue that. But we also have taken that next step or need to take continue to take that next step to involve more people with autism in our programs, in our, in, in our daily living activities, in our society, to accept them into what we're doing, into our employment opportunities and beyond, and then also to build inclusion. So it's not just about the knowledge and talking about it, but it's taking the next step to actually include people with autism every day. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I mean, Rod, in your experience, can you think of a time um, personally, professionally, where, where someone, where a misdiagnosis of autism, and I don't mean from a professional person, but from a friend, a colleague, stopping in a restaurant, um, you know, has has impacted you. You know, where where where? I guess the question I'm trying to say is for 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 those folks who are trying to uh, be up to date on the language and be respectful of, of everyone. It's a it's a challenging topic because the spectrum is so wide, and yeah. and the and the relationships you have with people is so wide. Uh, you know, give us some examples of, of things we should look out for and, and, and maybe some examples personally of people who've done it well and times where you haven't been treated fairly or well. Yeah. So I think the main one is filtering. Um, we on the spectrum, we're like Donald Trump. If it comes in our mind, we spit it out. Thank God they didn't have Twitter when I was a kid so I can deny I ever said it. And I think that's a big one for me is that a lot of times I'll say something without thinking about it and then people will take it the wrong way. I remember one time I almost saw a coworker who was kind of feminine almost get beat up and I made some comment, but I didn't mean it in any way that um, they could take it that way. And sometimes people, a lot of times people would all of a sudden say we rub people the wrong way because we don't have that filter ability. And I think that's a big one where we see in the workplace. Hmm. Anything to add on that, Kristen? Anything you see that is a common place where, where people are... Um you know, misinterpreted or, or... Yeah. I think one thing that's really important is to remember that sometimes people on the spectrum don't necessarily just pick up on or understand social norms in the way that other people might. So for example, um, at OU Cares, we have a pre-employment skills training right now, and we intentionally have to teach um, what it means to... Um, 
walk into an employment setting and um, create that filter. Try to not to say everything that you think. If you don't think someone looks good today, you don't necessarily have to, to, to tell them that, right? So being intentional about telling uh, and teaching those kinds of, of skills and strategies is really important. You know, a lot of this is about kind of the, the, the changes that happen throughout um, a person on the spectrum's life cycle. Um, over the next decade, it's estimated that one million autistic teens will enter adulthood and age out of sort of school-based services, where there does tend to be uh, some more specialized services. I have some friends that specifically picked a school district that had the best uh, services that they could find uh, to deal with two of their children who um, are on the spectrum. That was something you know I hadn't thought of or hadn't looked at, but but obviously that is a is a very important thing for a lot of folks. What is that transition like when you're when you're since you've You've been there, Ron. In fact, actually, yeah. I think you wrote a book about it. Yeah, you know, transitioning from a place where you have some specific support to you know an era. You know, you're you know the the rest of the world is is getting jobs and going to college, and 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 you're going to have to find some unique places for support. Talk us through that a little bit. Yeah. So one of the big problems when you reach adulthood is there's no more resources, and a lot of times people with autism are underemployed for the gifts they have. They don't know how to um, be an entrepreneur, or really um, be able to market themselves. And one of the things I found that everyone's successful on the, on the autism spectrum and the hundreds of people I've interviewed and famous people and celebrities is this, is they all had someone who helped them learn how to market. My mom helped me to learn how to market using the prairie dog and the honey badger and be able to be outgoing and use my gifts. But a lot of people with autism don't have that kind of savageness to, um, that you need in the business world. So they end up being underemployed or unemployed. And I think having resources there and um, books like the one I just finished writing will help those people learn those skills. And, and, and mindful that our listeners can't see, you have in front of you a, a, a stuffed honey badger uh, animal and a, a stuffed prairie dog animal. T tell me what those, what those do. Where do you take those? What do those represent? How do those help you? So the honey badger represents a meltdown. I got my first honey badger on my honeymoon in Chicago. And when you press its paw, every F-bomb in the book would come out in a lisp voice. And I don't bring him because I don't want it to go off and <laughs> you think I'm having a live demonstration of meltdown. So he represents that fierce advocate in me, a force to be reckoned with because the honey badger doesn't back down to no one. The prairie dog represents community. Prairie dogs are very communal in their lifestyle. They live in little packs under the ground. And sometimes we on the spectrum are isolated and underground and we want that connection that a prairie dog has. And it's the only animal that can understand um, verbs and adjectives in the animal kingdom outside of humans. Hmm. Interesting. I know, Kristen, you have a massive passion for helping uh, folks uh, on the spectrum find uh, work and be employed. Um, you mentioned that, I don't know if this, the stat is, is true, you said 3% of, uh, of folks in autism or with autism have uh, are, are gainfully employed. I'm not sure what it is. I'm sure it's far below national averages. Um, how do you do that? What's your passion? What's the best way to guide these folks to reach career goals? What are the support ser uh, services that you offer? And what do you recommend? Thank you so much for asking because that's so important because more and more of those children are growing into adults with autism and the disorder doesn't necessarily go away, right? It changes over the lifetime. And so 
I would definitely suggest individuals with autism start those conversations early with their families or families for your children when it's it's more appropriate that the families get involved in those conversations and advocate for their children. Starting the conversations early with their, their school districts, finding the resources that are available in their communities like Michigan Rehabilitation Services or here in Rochester, we have an amazing Dutton Farm and other resources as well that can be wonderful resources and supports for people beyond um, a school setting and related to employment. And then at OU Cares, we have great resources such as social skills training, communication trainings, as well as an intensive pre-employment skills training to learn the prerequisite social and communication skills to get and keep a job in any setting. We do a lot of individualization in that program, and those types of supports can be really important to set up adults with autism for success into the future. And how does someone find out about OU Cares? Thank you so much for asking. OU Cares um, can easily be found by Googling us, but our website is www.oakland.edu backslash O-U-C-A-R-E-S or backslash OU Cares. Um, you can also email us at OUCares at oakland.edu. And we've got some great events coming up, actually, with Ron and um, for the community as well. So, for example, on April 7th, we have Ron coming to talk with us and our families at a free virtual presentation. Um, and I'll let Ron maybe share a few a few um, words about that. And then on April 9th, we have our free family fun day on campus as well from 12 to 3. And we would welcome the community to those events. Sneak peek on April 7th. So I'm speaking on overcoming a hopeless complex autism mental health. Post-COVID we're coming into, there's a lot of people dealing with depression, dealing with mental health issues. In fact, 80% of people with autism will suffer during their lifetime from mental illness and depression. So I cover all that and show how to overcome that and develop plans, goals to be um, healthy, not only physically, but also mentally. Sure. And just in case our, our listeners are wondering, uh, Ron, you've, you've done amazing things. You've written books. You've uh, really opened up on this. What, what do you do full-time for a, for a job now? So I work full-time at Havenwick Hospital. I've been there now 14 years. I've never missed a day. Closest I ever came was um, 2015, December 26. I had bronchitis. I had 104 fever. I came in with bronchitis. They took my temperature. I told him, you need to take my temperature. When they called my supervisor, he said, this guy has 104. We're going to send him home. He said, who the hell would come in with 104 <laughs> fever? And he's, they said, we think he has Asperger. And he said, that's a real ass. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm also going on 19 years part-time as a professor of theology at Destiny Ministry School. And then 70 events a year I speak at. Yeah. Yeah, and then write a book every two years, Bob. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling a little bit uh, like I'm behind the curve here. Uh, <laughs> impressive. Uh, you know, one of the things we talk about in, in Right Down the Street is is everyone's experience, uh, no matter if they're an Olympic athlete or a, um, a community leader, or in this case, dealing with the very challenging topic of autism, everyone's experience is shaped by leaders. So who are some of the leaders, uh, Kristen, in your life that, uh, that have kind of shaped you? Uh, your perspective and your outlook on life. Sure. So number one, it might sound kind of cheesy, but the number one leader I always come back to in my life is my mom. She's always been the person who always has gone out of her way to help others, and that's shaped me and who I am. Um, beyond that, I look to amazing individuals like 
someone who Ron mentioned, Temple Grandin, and even the president of Oakland University, Dr. Ora Hirsch-Peskovitz, who I think spoke on the show um, last year. We have amazing leaders in our community that show show me every day how to um, continue to build compassion in what I do and motivate me every day to continue what I do. How about you, Ron? So I'd say my mom, with all the time she spent with me, my dad, he had a Protestant work ethic. The man will not work, he shall not eat. From age 14, I had my first job at Bill Knapp's right here in Rochester. <laughs> and then after that, Dr. Jack Van Impey, he um, let me be his first intern. He mentored me. And um, he had the most Bible verses memorized in the world at the time. He passed away January um, 18th, um, or two years ago now. Yeah. And he really had an impact on me. Yeah, ironically, a lot of people don't know Jack Van Impey, uh, who is a, a, you know, a global uh, televangelist to his studios are here in Rochester Hills. Yeah. So it was, uh, right probably worked crooks. out good for the internship. <laughs> Pretty mm -hmm. close. Well, the last question. Uh, we asked everybody on this show. Uh, there's no wrong answer. I'm going to start with you, Kristen, and then go to you, Ron. Uh, if you could have lunch or dinner with any person, dead or alive, who would it be? And as important as who would it be is where would you go to have have the meal? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Easy, hmm. easy, easy final question, right? So anyone, let me think. I would actually, again, this is going to be maybe cheesy because maybe people can't relate, but I would go back and have um, dinner with my grandma. Mm. And I wouldn't go anyplace except for her kitchen mm. because um, she went through a lot of struggles and she overcame a lot. And I did not have enough time with her to really learn um, more about how she overcame those things. And so that's what I would choose personally. That's great. And Ron? Um, probably um, my grandma because she was um, she's passed and she was a writer and I she never lived to see me publish any of my books and she published traditionally published three books even met Stephen King and she was on Good Morning America and um, I just wanted her to know that hey I'm a writer like you and what I knew I was successful when I started speaking at the places she did murder mysteries mm. like Dearborn Inn and um, Weber's and when I started speaking at those places I realized these were the very places my grandma did murder mysteries at in the 80s. Well, it's amazing. It's a reminder of how important family is and, uh, you know, that those roots are, are, uh, are incredibly important. And then our discussion today, which I really enjoyed, really focused on the role of family uh, in, in early intervention and support and, um, and just the, all the ways uh, that they've uh, both led to um, the experience you've had, Ron, and the career that you've chosen, uh, Kristen, are really impressive. I want to thank both of you uh, for being with us here today. Uh, remind folks to use the month of April to, to learn a little bit more um, about, uh, about autism and, and, uh, and the ways it impacts people in our communities and, and how maybe you can get involved in some of the solutions. Uh, and to those of uh, you in the audience, thank you. Thank you for joining us again uh, as we listen and learn from the people who live and work with you and me right down the street. Another great episode. Until next time, so long and God bless.